I grew up in Birmingham, and in about 2002, a scandal hit the city uh, involving Health South. And you've probably heard the story. Richard Scrucci, uh, along with a partner of his, uh, came out with the idea in the mid, early to mid-80s about offering rehabilitation services outside of a hospital. And that was the idea that birthed Health South. And for many years, um, all through uh, really my uh, years growing up, Health South was became a staple in Birmingham. Of course, UAB Medicine and downtown Southside becoming known for, and still to this day, of course, known for the medicine, the hospital, and and what what's offered there. And Health South was just, I mean, it was a building you saw coming into Southside. I went to school at UAB, so you just got used to seeing it. Well, uh, in 2002, some things came to light. Uh, when this was started, uh, Richard Scrucci and Aaron Beam, they, they co-founded Health South. Uh, it was actually you know, incorporated in Birmingham. The first location was in, in Little Rock, Arkansas, and then Birmingham's the one that was known uh, more than anything. But in the mid-90s, everything was really good for several years. They were making tons of money and everything was going well. But in the mid-90s, somewhere around 96, the second quarter, of that business year, they, they realized that they were not going to make as much of a profit as, as Wall Street expected them to make. And so instead of coming clean, Richard Scrucci ordered uh, Beam to basically generate fake profits, to report uh, things and charge for things and report profits that didn't exist, and that's what they did. And they got away with it for about uh, four or five Years And then suddenly, a guy on the inside uh, decided he had had enough, and he reported everything that had been going on. And so it all came to light, and it was this huge scandal in Birmingham, and, and uh, Scrooge ended up bribing the governor in order to try to cover it up, and both of them ended up in prison when it was all said and done. Uh, actually, Scrooge didn't get convicted of any of his crimes involving Health South. He was convicted of bribe, bribing uh, uh, the governor. Uh, but that's what's known as an inside job. All of that took place on the inside, right? They were generating profits that didn't exist. It was all a cover-up. It was all fake. Um, and today we're going to see an inside job, but it's going to be in a church. And as we go through, continue through this series on the churches in Revelation, we're going to see something happening inside of this church at Thyatira that is it's an inside job, and it is one that is threatening to destroy this local church. And so hopefully we'll learn from them uh, what not to do, but also as Jesus instructs them and in what to do, we will learn the same thing. We are continuing our series on the, the seven churches, seven Jesus' message to the churches uh, in Revelation looking at each of these churches that literally existed and, and seeing how the message applies to us today, to every church today, regardless of where we are. Uh, we see, have, have, we've learned quite a bit uh, throughout the first few weeks. We've learned the importance of love. Uh, the, the, the church had lost their first love, the church at Ephesus. We've learned the importance of encouragement. The church at Smyrna was doing great things, no rebuke there, but they needed to be encouraged to endure. We've also talked about the church at Pergamum and, and the danger of false teaching and how that can destroy 
a church. Today, we are going to look at this inside job and learn from the church at Thyatira. The purpose of this series that we've been in is that we need to know who we are, and we need to know what we're to do as the people of God. You know, Dwight Gunner talks about all the confusion that exists in churches. They don't have an identity. They don't have a foundation. We want to make sure our foundation is sure and secure. So we need to know who we are, because if we don't know who we are, and we don't know what we're to be doing, then we're going to try anything and everything to be effective. Uh, We'll try whatever, and we see that. Church is filling up calendars. We can fill up a calendar. We'll try anything and everything to be effective, but if we don't know our purpose, if we don't know what we're supposed to be doing, then all that will do is create confusion. It will result in all kinds of confusion. We want to avoid that. So we are looking at these letters, and through this journey, Jesus is showing us what we are to be about, and pitfalls that we are to avoid as his church, as his bride. So we're going to look in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29 today and learn some lessons from the church at Thyatira. Follow along with me as we read these verses in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this I know your deeds your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first but I have this against you you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say, say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have, known, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, what you have hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Each of these churches, Jesus knows where they are. He knows what they're going through. He knows all of the good that's going on, and he acknowledges that, but he also addresses the issue. There's a rebuke in this. This is one of the five churches. There's a rebuke in this letter to this church. Uh, you know, we, we look at this, this city, uh, the city of Thyatira, and there's not a whole lot we know about it. It's one of the lesser-known cities of these cities mentioned in the letters to, to the churches in Revelation. We don't know a whole lot, so it kind of makes it complicated. It makes it a little bit difficult to study this letter in terms of background, but there's some things that we do know. We know where it was located. If you look on the map here, it's right between Sardis and Pergamum. 
Uh, and, it, and it, I mean, it was basically right smack in the middle on a mail route. All right, so we know the location. Uh, we know uh, some key factors about this city. We don't know a lot, but we know enough. We know enough to get an understanding of what's going on, the context that this letter was written in. Uh, three characteristics this city's known for. First was its military. This was where uh, Caesar's elite guard was stationed. We know that. So it's known for military. The purpose was to slow down enemy attacks. And so essentially any enemy attacks that were headed for the cities of Pergamum and Sardis, because of its location, it could slow down some of those attacks. Uh, so that's one purpose we know. It had a military purpose. We also know that it was a city that, that contained several trade unions. When we look at this city, there were trade unions and guilds everywhere in this city. If you were going to make a living in this city, if you were going to work, if you were going to provide for your family, you had to be a member of one of these trade unions, of one of these guilds, and that's going to come into play. That's very important in understanding what's going on in this city and why it's such a problem for the church, why the problem has crept into the church. Members included road makers, tent makers, tanners, weavers, potters, carpenters, all members of these different trade unions. The third characteristic of this city was it's known it was known as a religious city now we've each city that we've looked at we've talked about the temples that existed in these cities right where idol worship's going on well that's not present at Thyatira there aren't these huge temples not a lot of uh, idol worship in that sense going on but what they did have was that these trade unions each and every one of these trade unions had its own patron god and so within these trade unions, there's idol worship taking place. Uh, they, they have these parties, these celebrations, and they end up worshiping these little patron gods that they have. And we are going to see that that is a big reason for the problems that exist in the church at Thyatira. You know, when we come to Christ, when we are saved, we are given a new life, right? We are made new, and our life changes, and we can't continue to live in the old life of sin. We have a brand new life. If we are truly transformed, we won't be perfect, but we begin living in a new direction and in a new way by the power of God. The believers in the church at, at Thyatira allowed themselves to be led, even though they were believers, they were allowing themselves to be led into a trap of immorality. Um, they are being led down a road that is ending in immorality and destruction. Someone inside, an inside job, someone inside the church, not outside the church. The threat is inside, and that person is leading them astray, leading them to do things that they know that they shouldn't. So unless they repent, God says, unless you repent, you, there's going to be big problems. There are going to be great consequences. There are going to be great issues that come as a result of your rebellion unless you repent. The challenge for them is to do an about-face and to live the life that God's called them to live by his power, his strength, to live morally pure lives. And so this morning, we're going to look at what it takes to live a morally pure life because we're all called to do that, right? And we're all, we all have this in common. We can't do it on our own. And so what does it take? What do we need to do to put ourselves in a position to live a morally pure life? I immediately think of Romans chapter 12. Uh, and it, it provides a blueprint for this, living a morally excellent, morally pure life. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So how do we live morally pure lives? Well, the first step is this. We need to realize that morality is evident through our actions. All right, it, you know, we are, we are given a new life in Christ. When we are saved, we have a new heart, a new life. That old life is gone. That's what baptism represents. We are, that, that life of sin, we are dead to that life of sin. We have a new life. And what, the way others see that is by how we live. Our life changes. And so this involves good deeds. It involves the things that we do. I mean, we're not saved by good works, but good works show that we're saved. A morally pure life is evident. One of the ways it's evident is by good deeds, the things that we do, uh, that, that we, we serve Jesus by serving others. Jesus addressed this, right? He talked about, you know, uh, if you, you know, I was rich, uh, or I was hungry, and you fed me. I was poor. Uh, you gave me money. You know, I, he, he talks about how serving people is the equivalent of serving him. And he said, when asked, you know, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you naked? And he said in Matthew 25, 40, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And so one of the ways we show our love for Christ is by serving others, meeting the needs of others, performing good deeds in the love of God to meet the needs of others. Before he rebukes, The church at Thyatira, Jesus says this. He commends them in verse 19. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. I know your deeds. That word deeds that's used here is used throughout the New Testament to describe good works. He's specifically talking about good works that we perform for others. The believers at Thyatira had performed good works that reflected positively on the character of Jesus. So yes, they have a problem, but they are doing good things. They are serving others in the name of Christ, and they're doing it sincerely. They're sincerely wanting to show their love for Jesus by serving others and letting them experience the love of Christ by, through their good works, through their good deeds. So if we're going to live the way that Jesus wants us to live, if we're going to live morally pure lives, it has to involve good works. We've got to be willing to serve others, to do good things for others in the name of Christ. And as a result, we will glorify our Father in heaven. Morality also involves love, love, specifically love in action. Jesus says, I see your love. How does he see your love? Well, it's by the way they live, by the way they treat others, by their good deeds, by their actions, all of these things. It is, it is visible, it's evident. Their love for him is evident and how they live in their everyday lives. We, you know, again, tied to works here. Works don't save us, but it is evidence of our faith. And he's saying, I see that. I see what you're doing. And it reflects my love. It's showing love. What we're doing, we're doing because God loves us. That's the frame of mind that they have. God loves me. He loves others. He wants to love others through me, so I'm going to love on other people. I'm going to do that. I'm going to be a conduit for God's love. That's what they're doing. And he's saying, I see that. You're doing that. You're doing well. But they also have faith. Morality involves faith. You know, we have to have faith to be saved, right? We have to be willing to accept Christ, to have put our faith and trust in him. But faith is, is displayed each day, isn't it? 
as we follow Jesus, as he leads us, as he guides us, we listen to him, we study his word, we listen to the Holy Spirit, and when he tells us to act, we act. Even if we don't know what the outcome's going to be, if, even if it doesn't make complete sense, when Jesus leads us, we follow. And, and pure faith is faith that doesn't question. We are willing to obey without question. And so they, he, you know, the, these, these believers are walking in faith in many ways in their lives. They're displaying that. He write, Jesus writes about their faith. He writes about their faith being solid. You know, it's interesting all of the things that they're doing well. They do have this huge problem, which we'll get to in a moment, but they are doing some things really, really well. Their service. Service here literally means ministry. He's talking about their ministry. I mean, you get the idea that in this church, I mean, there is some groundbreaking, life-changing ministry taking place. I mean, there's some incredible things going on. People's lives are being touched. People's lives are being changed. They're reaching people. They are effective in what they're doing. They are effectively living out their faith and sharing the gospel and sharing the love of Jesus. So you start to notice a theme here, right? I mean, their service, their acts of ministry. They are doing some incredible things. Um, they persevered. You know, it's not, you know, their lives, it's not just every now and then. They're doing this consistently each day. I mean, they're consistently living out their faith uh, and how they serve others and how they treat others. They endured, even in the midst of all the challenges and difficulties they've, they've faced. Uh, Jesus talks about their endurance. They kept on doing good works for others and helping people in need and had made progress. Jesus says, I know your progress. You're doing more now than you used to. They're progressing in their service of the Lord. This was a good church. Don't misunderstand, okay? This is a church that any of us probably would, would identify with. I mean, they were good people doing good things. It's not some evil, satanic gathering here, okay? These are good, hardworking individuals who love God, love other people, and they desire to see people come to know Christ, so this is a good place in many ways. Another thing we see is that sacrifice is included. Romans 12:1 tells us we should be a living sacrifice, that our lives should be lived as a sacrifice to Jesus. And we know that these believers at Thyatira were willing to sacrifice for the gospel and for others. They had complete devotion to God. And complete devotion to God involves sacrifice. I've got to be willing to sacrifice. It was a story from, it's been several years ago, a man by the name of Gareth Griffiths went, decided on vacation to go skydiving. And so he goes skydiving in tandem with, with an instructor, uh, a man by the name of Michael Costello. And so they, they jump out of the plane and at first everything's great until they go to open the chute and the main chute fails. Well, I've never been skydiving, but if you've been skydiving, you know that you have a backup chute, right? And so they think, okay, everything's well until the backup chute failed. And so they're plummeting to the earth from 5,000 feet. Uh, not an incredibly high jump, but uh, still 5,000 feet. That's high. I mean, if you're falling to the ground like a rock. And so they're falling. And he's, you know, he's attached to his instructor. Instructor's on top. He's on bottom. And there's nothing he can do. Nothing the instructor can do except one thing. Right before they hit the ground, they're spinning out of control. The instructor gets control. Right before he hits the ground, he knows what to do to turn them over. He folds his arms, his legs. He uses the wind, turns them over, and takes the impact, kills him immediately, the instructor. But Gareth Griffiths lives. His instructor sacrificed his life so that his student would live. 
And these guys, it's, it's just driven into them. You protect those students that you train. And he did that. I mean, he, the greatest sacrifice, Jesus himself said, greater love has, there is no greater love than someone who would lay down their life for another person. Plain and simple. Jesus did that for us. Uh, you know, there are very few people in our lives probably that we'd be willing to do that for. Maybe our family, our, our, my wife, my kids, certainly. But other people, you know, you got to think twice about that, right? But Jesus, he, he gave his life for us when we didn't want him to or recognize that we needed him to. We were lost in sin, would never have come to him on our own. But Jesus sacrificed his life so that we could live. And once we become his, once we're saved... We are called to sacrifice just as he did. And there really is no middle ground there. We've got to be willing to give our entire lives in his service, in service of him. And whatever he calls us to do, we've got to be willing to do. And these, these believers, even with the problems in the church, they were willing to sacrifice. We have to be willing to sacrifice. Only then will he be able to transform us into what he wants us to be. We've got to submit completely, give our lives to him. And that leads us to the next step. If we're going to be morally pure, that's developed through internal transformation. I love Romans 12, too. You know, being transformed from the inside out. And when Jesus enters our lives, he gives us a new life. He creates in us a a new heart, a clean heart, a pure heart. And we are immediately justified before God. We are in right standing with God. But then then there begins the process of sanctification. We're immediately in right standing with God, but we're not perfect, right? We're still sinful. We're still imperfect. But Jesus goes to work on us. The Holy Spirit works in and through us, transforming us from the inside out. Each day, if we will submit, each day, making us more like him. We're a new creation. Romans five seventeen. whoever's a believer in Christ is a new creation. The old way of living has disappeared. A new way of living has come into existence. That's part of being born again. But Jesus, like a painter, goes to work on us. We're a blank canvas in many ways. And so he goes to work on us. You know, I don't have an artistic bone in my body when it comes to drawing or painting. And I'm amazed by folks that, that can paint. And, and I, I, when I, whenever I begin to watch somebody begin to paint, I'm enthralled at how they can create something out of nothing using their skill and imagination. And watching that process unfold it's incredible, right? And that's what Jesus does. He starts with us, and we are blank. I mean, we completely new life, new heart, and he begins to work on us, slowly but surely creating a masterpiece. And once we, he's done, we will be perfect. We're not there yet, but he continues to work one stroke at a time, one day at a time. I remember growing up watching Bob Ross. Y'all remember him? Yeah, y'all remember Bob Ross? Uh, my kids have now, Annie especially, has now discovered Bob Ross and uh, just loves Bob Ross. Um, he's, I think he's on Netflix now. So you can go, you, this afternoon, go watch some Bob Ross, okay? It'll make you happy. Um, he and his squirrels and all of the other stuff he had. 
but uh, he's got some sayings. And the other night, Annie and I had this thing where uh, she'll write, she'll leave a note on her nightstand. I'll go in and, and after she goes to sleep, you know, uh, tuck her in or whatever, and she'll leave a note on her nightstand. It's usually something, you know, a quote from a kid's movie or something. She'll write on one side and I have to complete it on the other side, whatever it is. If it's, if it's a quote from a movie, I have to you know, right, it's just something that we started recently. And one night, she, I walk in there, and she's got a quote from Bob Ross on her little card. And, and one of his famous quotes is that when, when he's painting, he would say, there are no mistakes, just happy accidents, right? And I looked. I had to go get my iPad and Google Bob Ross quotes. So I, can, I don't even remember what I wrote, but I came up with one. But that quote, there are no mistakes, just happy accidents. You know, if you're a painter, you're going to make mistakes. You just have to decide what you're going to do with it. You know, most painters are like that, but not Jesus. He doesn't even make, forget mistakes, he doesn't even make happy accidents. Every stroke is intentional. He has a purpose, and he uses every, even when we make mistakes, we make mistakes, he even takes that and uses it to create that masterpiece. He goes to work on us, one day at a time, one stroke at a time, creating a masterpiece. If we will submit, we get to experience that. We cannot allow ourselves to be filled with the things of the world. If, we're gonna, if God is going to complete his work, I mean, we have a part in it, right? We've got to be committed, and we've got to stay committed. We can't allow ourselves to be filled with all the junk of the world, or that will affect what God is doing. You know, he could overcome that, but he chooses to allow us to have a choice and a part in it. Paul says, do not be conformed to the world. We can't be conformed. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, the Living Bible paraphrases it this way. It says, haven't you yet learned that your body is the home of the Holy Spirit God gave you and that he lives within you? Your own body does not belong to you, for God has bought you with a great price. So use every part of your body to give glory back to God because he owns it. You know, we should, there are many reasons why we shouldn't be filled with the junk of the world. The primary being it's the place that the Holy Spirit of God dwells. It is his home. And when we put stuff in our body, when we allow ourselves to see things we shouldn't or, or, or take in things that we shouldn't physically or expose ourselves to things that we shouldn't, we are exposing him to that. We are putting that in his dwelling place. And this is really where we see the problem at the church at Thyatira. The problem in Thyatira centers around a person that Jesus called Jezebel. Now listen, let me be clear. The problem isn't that this lady is a leader in the church. It's not even that she's a prophetess. I mean, we see in the Old Testament and New Testament examples of women uh, fulfilling those roles and leading, even proclaiming the word of God. So that's not the issue that God is addressing here. The issue is what she's leading people to do, all right? The issue is what she's teaching, what she's doing, how she's leading people astray. We see the first Jezebel. It's interesting. It's probably not her real name, by the way. It's more of it, what it represents, but we see the first Jezebel in 1 Kings 16, the daughter of the king of Tyre and Saddam. Um, Ahab, who was the king of Israel at that time, worried was worrying about uh, e- econo- the, the economy, and so he decides to make a pact with the king of Tyre and Saddam by marrying his daughter. He figures that's going to provide security for the nation of Israel, but it doesn't because he's doing something that God doesn't want him to do. God's more concerned with obedience than he is uh, with your personal security, all right, and my personal security. Uh, He will protect us and he will provide for us, but we've got to do things his way. And 
Ahab decides to go another way. And he, th- he thinks, oh, I'll just set this, this alliance up and we'll be good. We'll be safe from an economic perspective. Uh, but this wasn't acceptable to God because he wants his people to depend on him. We should depend on him. And Ahab wasn't willing to do that. So, you know, it didn't work out the way he planned. Jezebel, he, she comes, but she also brings all the prophets of Baal with her. She begins to get rid of all the prophets of God. And it culminates in this showdown with Elijah where he, he calls down the fire of God right? But it did not work out. She led God's people into idol worship, into betraying their love for God, their devotion to God. And so it's intentional that Jesus uses that word, probably not her real name, but evidently there's a lady in this church that's doing something very similar, okay? She's leading God's people into idol worship. You say, well, Pastor, you said there weren't any temples, and and there weren't these huge temples with idol worship going on, but remember those trade unions, If you were going to do business in this day and time in Thyatira, you had to be a member of one of these trade unions. And and in these trade unions, they would have these parties. They would have these gatherings. And in these gatherings, inevitably, the party would turn. Remember those little gods they would have. Inevitably, the party would become a worship service. And so if you're a member of this trade union, you had to attend this gathering, this party, and you had to participate in this worship service, or you didn't get included. So there's a conflict for believers, right? They have a decision to make. Are we going to worship the one and only true God, or are we going to work and provide food for our families? Are we going to compromise and worship these patron gods that they have? And, and evidently what's happening is Jezebel has influence in this church. She's got, she's got some influence some standing, and she's saying, okay, it's okay to do this. We can go to church on Sunday. Remember all this good stuff we're doing. We're serving the Lord. We're doing good things, impacting people's lives, all good things, she says. But we can also go and provide for our families. It's okay to be members. We can participate in these worship services. Don't worry about it. And Jesus says, no, no, I am the one, the only one who deserves your devotion and your worship. So there's their problem. They're allowing themselves, as we've seen in other examples in these letters, they're doing the Jesus thing on Sunday, yes. They're going through the motions. They're doing the right things. And many of them sincerely want to serve the Lord, but they're also allowing themselves to be transformed by the culture. Do not be conformed, Paul said. And that is exactly what they're doing. They're allowing if any, anything that we allow to pull our affection, our love away from Christ is idolatry. And that's what's happening. They're allowing themselves to be influenced in a negative way by the culture. And this lady is leading the way. It could have been anybody. But she is using her influence to pull them away, to lead them away. In some ways, this is an issue of power, influence. You know, same as the first Jezebel. Again, there's intention here why he's using this. Whether it was actually her name or not, there's, there's symbolism here. There's intent here. But we all have to answer the question. Now listen, there may come a day where we're faced with this. And it may be sooner than we think. Do I trust God enough to follow him even if it means putting myself or even my family in jeopardy? Because that's exactly what they were doing. Again, if you wanted to work at all in Thyatira, you had to be a member of one of these guilds, one of these unions. So by saying no, that means I can't work 
I can't provide. I've got to trust God completely. And that's exactly what he was calling us to do. We have to ask the same question. Am I willing to trust God even if it doesn't make sense? Even if it seems like I'm actually doing harm to myself? Um, do I trust him to provide? But God issues a warning. There will be a price to pay for what they're doing. Sickness, tribulation. They need to remain committed to God and God alone. And we're called to do the same. And in order to do that, we've got to be submitted to the Holy Spirit. Completely and totally submitted. And it's a daily commitment. We have to do every morning. We have to wake up and say, God, today is yours. I'm going to live for you. Not my way, your way. And then we have to actually live according to what we've committed. Paul, in Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That, that is a continual process. Not transformed in the past, but each day continually transformed. That process of sanctification every single day. I've got to allow God to do his work in my life. And the way I do that, it's not that I'm controlling God, okay? It's that I submit to him. I'm making myself available to him so that he can do, he can complete that masterpiece. A spiritual transformation takes place. The Holy Spirit works within us to empower us, but we have to work toward moral excellence. We have a part in this. We have to be willing to obey, to submit and obey. And Romans 12, 2 gives us uh, ways, uh, gives us the blueprint for that, for transformation. And what we learn, what we find throughout Scripture and throughout our lives is that God uses three primary tools to transform us. This isn't in your notes, but you can write it down if you want to. He uses three things. One is His Word. God uses his word to transform. It's got to be taking it in. I've got to be feeding on the word of God if I'm going to be transformed. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Therefore, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what, what we said as the very word of God, which, of course, it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. It continually works. It's alive. It's active, we're told. And it works in us goes to the deepest, darkest places of who we are, reveals things about us that we don't have a clue about. I mean, he, he, God, God's word works. It's alive. It works in us. He also uses prayer. As we pray, he leads us. He directs us. If we pray the right way, if we pray in submission and pray the way we're supposed to, look at Paul's prayer, part of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. In Ephesians 3, 17 and 18, the last part of 17, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. We need to be praying that for others. We need to be praying that for ourselves, that God would increase our understanding of him. How, how wide, how long, how far, how deep is his love, the scope of his love, his work, his desire, his plan, and how we are to be involved in that. God uses prayer to transform us, to transform our perspective, to get our hearts in line with who he is. Prayer isn't about changing the mind of God. It's about getting my heart in line with what he's doing and what he wants. It's about submission. He uses prayer, but I have to be praying in line with his will, in agreement with his will. We must pray for each other. God also uses suffering. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, dear friends, don't be surprised or shocked that you're going through testing that is like walking through fire. Be glad for the chance to suffer as Christ suffered. It will prepare you for even greater happiness when he makes his glorious return. 
God uses suffering in a way that he doesn't use anything else because we depend on God in those times in ways that we never would when things were good. I'll never forget my first pastorate. Um, I did a lot of funerals in my first church. It was an older church, and, and I learned how to do funerals at that church. But there was one in particular, and again, it was an older congregation. It, it was expected, but there was one that was unexpected. I was actually, uh, Mandy had gone to visit her parents. Gracie was small. She was just a couple of months old, I believe, maybe uh, not quite a year, I think. And they had her, uh, Mandy's mom and dad were living in Atlanta at the time, and they had gone to Atlanta, and I was there by myself. And, and, uh, and that Friday, I was playing golf in Pascagoula, Mississippi. I was out on the golf course, and I get a phone call. And a couple who were members of the church, they hadn't been there. I'd been there three years. They hadn't been there in that amount of time. Hadn't been there in probably 10 years. Had been to the church. After Hurricane Katrina, their son, who was in his 40s at the time, had moved home to help them. They were both in poor health. He had moved home to help them because their house, it was closer to the beach than our house was. They got more water than we did. So he was there helping them build their house back, get back. And again, I had never met them other than seeing their name on the roll didn't know anything about him. I get a phone call uh, from the administrative assistant at the church and says that his name was Doug, said that, that Doug had, they had woken up that morning and found Doug dead in his bedroom. He had died of a massive heart attack sometime in the night. And they want me over there. They want me to come see him. Never met him before. Didn't know anything about him. Of course, I immediately, I stopped what I was doing. I went home, uh, got changed, went to, to see them. I walk in and I, you know, what do you say? to a couple that's just lost their son, right? I mean, you, you, there's nothing you can say. But I began that day building a relationship with them, and I watched God use that suffering to transform that couple. They, after about three or four months, uh, the dad, I was over visiting them at their house, and he said, you know what, I, this was the worst thing that could ever have happened to us. I've never known pain like I've been through, but... This experience has driven me back to the feet of Jesus. And he said, I don't ever want to be like I was before. I want to be close to my Savior. And to my knowledge, to the day that they passed, they were faithful at that church, and they faithfully served the Lord. Even with all their health problems, God used that suffering to transform them and to bring them back to himself. You know, God will use hurt. You heard it say he never wastes a hurt. And it's true. God will use hurt in ways it doesn't make it good. It doesn't make it pleasant. And I guarantee you that, that the kings would tell you that they would rather have their son, right? But God uses those hurts in ways that he doesn't use other things. But we have to be committed daily. And we've seen what it takes to be morally pure. Now let's look at how it directly affects our lives as we finish up this morning. More morality, moral purity produces rewards, eternal rewards. And listen, we... You know, we're not in it as, okay, God, I'm going to do this if you do this for me. It's not like a bargaining type of thing, but, but Jesus is very clear that there's a reward for those who follow him. Look back again at verses 25 through 29 of Revelation 2. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. I, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there are clear rewards here, specific rewards. Jesus wants us, though, to depend on him. He wants to work through us. He wants us to learn to do things his way so that he can accomplish his purposes through me. The problem is, many times, we are like this box. We treat what God wants us to do like this box, all right? You know, God wants us to do things, right? He calls us to action, and we think we have to figure out exactly how it's going to work. I brought from the back room here, our vacuum cleaner too, okay? No, I'm not going to vacuum the floor, but uh, I I want to make a point here. We treat God's instructions, God's expectations, we treat his leading in our lives much like we do this vacuum cleaner in this box, and here's what I mean. Can you imagine any scenario, this is just a doll box, it's one of the girls, it's about the size of a shoe box, can you imagine any scenario uh, that, I, that, that would allow me to get this vacuum cleaner inside this box. Even if I took it apart in little bitty pieces, there is no way I'm fitting this inside of this, right? It's just not going to work. That's the reason I use the vacuum cleaner is because it's so big. It could be anything. But we treat God that way, don't we? We think that we have to be able to understand everything he wants to do and how he's going to do it. We live our lives many times trying to put God inside the box. You've heard that phrase. But when he tells us, here's what I want to make you. I'm going to transform you into a new creation. I'm going to make you into what I want you to be. I'm calling you to serve me. You cannot join that trade union. You cannot, even if it means sacrificing your family's well-being in the present, you cannot do that, but I'll provide for you. You have to be faithful. You have to continue to endure in faithfulness, and I will reward you. And then we go to work, say, okay, God, I want to do that, but let me see if I can't figure this out. Let me see if I can't put all the pieces together and understand exactly what you're doing and how you're doing and why you're doing it. And when God says, no, you cannot understand my mind. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not yours. If we're going to follow God, we're going to have to follow him in faith. Whether that's individually, as a church, corporately, we've got to be willing to follow him, even if what he's asking us to do doesn't make sense from a human reason perspective. We can either try to put God in a box or we can let him do things his way. And he can do incredible things through us. That's the decision that the church at Thyatira had to make. Were they willing to follow him even if what he was asking them to do seemed like it was putting their families in harm's way? He'll give us the power. Not power to abuse, not for self-advancement. It's not about us, but he'll give us power to live, to be free, free to serve, free to know him. Free to follow his plan and experience his plan for our lives. And if we let him do all of those things, there will be incredible rewards. You know, Romans 12, 2 talks about how we'll be able to prove his will. We'll experience his good and perfect will for our lives. And in this church, Jesus mentions specific rewards that they will receive. There's the reward of righteousness. In Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and who has sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. We want moral purity. And moral purity is a, is a reward in and of itself, being in right standing with God, being righteous 
and becoming more so each day. But there's also the reward of guiltlessness because when I'm following God's will for my life, when I'm living in obedience to God, yes, I'm still going to make mistakes, but I don't have this overwhelming sense of guilt hanging over me. I'm at peace because I know that I'm obeying, living in obedience to God, and that is freedom in and of itself. But there's also the reward of living in God's will. Just that in and of itself is a reward. And if you've ever been in the will of God and then lived outside the will of God, if you are a follower of Christ, you don't ever want to be there again. You want to be in the will of God. You want to, you know the peace and the security and the comfort of being in God's will. And, and you don't knowingly want to get outside of God's will ever again. Now listen, we make mistakes and all of us have probably been there. I know I have in my life but I also know what that led to, and I don't want to go there again. You know, being in the will of God contains rewards that are indescribable. Then you will know, Romans 12, 2, you will learn from your own experience how his ways really satisfy you. That's the living Bible paraphrase. An abundant life, doing God's will. In John 13, verses 15 through 17, Jesus says, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you if you do them. He'll bless us if we follow him. He doesn't have to do that. It's not like we're earning it. I mean, anything he does for us is grace. We can't earn it. He's blessing us. George W. Truett said this. He said, to know the will of God is the greatest knowledge. To do the will of God is the greatest achievement. And we're achieving it not for ourselves, but for his glory, for his sake. And we receive within this the reward of Christ himself. Jesus says, I'll give you the morning star. He's talking about himself. He says, I'll give you myself. I'll be with you. You'll experience my presence. You don't have to do all these things alone. You don't have to make all these changes. I am the painter. I will do it, but you have to be willing to follow. But if you follow, if you obey, you'll have the blessing of knowing me intimately. Moral purity and complete faithfulness require a 100% commitment of my mind, my heart, my body, everything that I am and everything that I have. And God wants us to experience the life that he has for us, the abundant life that he has for us. But we've got to be willing to follow. We've got to be willing to obey. We've got to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit and be transformed by the Holy Spirit from the inside out. On January the 13th of 2012, a captain by the name of Francesco Chatino steered the Costa Concordia toward uh, the shore in Italy. It's off the Tuscan island in Giglio, Italy. And he got a little too close, um, didn't really understand where he was, what he was doing, ran the ship aground, and then before long, after striking the rocks, the ship ended up tilted on its side, half submerged in water. 35 people, I believe it was, 32 passengers were killed in this because he, he was trying to show off, basically, and he got too close to the shore. But that, that's bad enough, right? What's even worse is this captain, what's the rule if you're captaining a ship and it goes down, what's the rule? You go down with it. No, he abandoned ship before those passengers. 32 passengers were killed. He abandoned ship. You know what he's known as now? Captain Coward is his name, is his nickname. He abandoned ship. I think a lot of us go through life thinking that if life gets tough, that Jesus is going to abandon ship. Let me tell you, he will never abandon you. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. When life gets tough, no matter what life brings, 
you can live in the confidence of knowing that Jesus won't abandon ship, and that means I don't have to abandon ship, right? If I'll trust him, if I'll obey him, if I'll follow him, even if it doesn't make sense, he will always, always, always be with me. There's a lot of things that I'm uncertain about in life, but there's one thing that I'm absolutely certain of is that Jesus will never leave me. He's giving up himself. He said, I'll give you myself, and that's all you need. I'll give you me. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fret. You can live in peace even when life is tough. We simply need to seek Jesus, to seek Christ, and he gives us the power to face whatever we need, whatever we have to face. Think about those things as we finish. Think about the things that are weighing you down right now. Think about the things that are pulling you away from trusting Jesus, whether you're a child of his or not. If you're not, the first thing you have to do is accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. But if you belong to Jesus, what is it that is pulling your affection, your attention, your ability to trust, pulling you away from Christ? What are the things that are are weighing you down that tempt you to look for human ways to fix your problems, ways to put God in a box? What are those things that are tempting you to do that? Let those go. Give those things to God and say, Lord, I'm here. I'm yours. Use me, and I'll follow you wherever you lead, and I'll do it however you want me to do it. What in your life is keeping you from living the morally pure life, the abundant life that God wants you to experience? Confess it to God. Follow him and seek to show your love and your commitment to him each and every day that you live. And he will transform you from the inside out. And you will, be, you will become that masterpiece that he desires you to be. Because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, may we seek your face in all we do. May we submit to you each day, trusting you and you alone for our provisions and for salvation for salvation first and our provisions each day to mold us, to shape us, to transform us from the inside out as you've described in your word and then specifically in Romans 12. Lord, you are constantly at work on us. If we will submit and follow you, you will work, chip away each day with each stroke, creating the masterpiece that you desire us to be. And one day we will be who you intend for us to be. When we stand before you face to face in your presence, we will be perfect as you are. We will be as you are. We can look forward to that. But in the meantime, Lord, we have to trust you. And if there's anything in our lives that's weighing us down, that's pulling us away from you, that's distracting us, that's tempting us to want to put you in a box and to to figure out life on our own or do things our way, we need to remove it. Lord, may we lay those things at your feet now whether it's self-sufficiency or temptation or addiction or, or um, some form of immorality or, or if, it's, if it's something that's in and of itself innocent that's, that's, that we have too much affection for, affection that belongs to you, whatever it is, Lord, may we lay it at your feet. May we confess that sin to you in this moment, knowing that you will forgive us. If we will turn away from that and turn to you in repentance, you will... You will accept us and you will take us where we are as we are and you will go to work on us again. You will continue the work you've started if we belong to you and you will clean us and you will begin again working 
and making us what you want us to be, transforming us daily. The challenge for us is to not be conformed by the behavior and customs of the world, by the culture that we live in, but to be transformed daily by the renewing of our hearts and minds as you, Holy Spirit, work in and through us. Lord, we know that you have bought, we are yours, you have bought us with a price. You paid your life. You paid for us with your life. Lord, we are yours. But we know that if you, if we will obey you and serve you, you will give us the gift of yourself and the abundant life that you have promised us, that you have planned for us. Lord, I want to experience that for myself, for my family. I want this church family to experience that. May we submit to you, doing things your way and your way alone, truly making you Lord of our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.